Your salvation cost Jesus everything. And for us, it both cost us nothing and everything. And by the end of this paragraph, my prayer is that we will understand exactly what that means a little bit more deeply. We're coming off quite a celebratory paragraph where Peter finally got it. He makes the great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is great news. And in response, Jesus says he will build his church upon that confession. Death itself will not prevail against it. Glorious moment. A welcome change of pace as the disciples are finally starting to get it. After almost three years of Jesus' ministry, they're finally starting to click. But, and well, because of this progress, Jesus begins to give them the next steps of his plan. What's now going to take place now that the foundation has been laid? And in verse 21, Jesus tells them, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. And really, this is a shift in Jesus' ministry, as we're going to see played out in the coming chapters. Jesus is really preparing his disciples for his coming death and resurrection. But much of it is being misunderstood. I mean, all he, they only heard up until his death. They didn't even hear him say resurrection, I'm convinced, based off of how Peter responds. But they didn't understand at this point. They still had much to understand who it was that they were standing before, who they were listening to, what kind of Messiah Jesus really was. And frankly, if, if you missed our Good Friday message, I'd encourage you guys to check it out online. It's on the website. It's on the YouTube page. I, I really go into the details describing how Jesus' sacrifice in our place was the main theme throughout the whole Old Testament, really all of the scriptures. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we see these hints, these foreshadowings of this sacrifice that would come for us. But rather than preach that again, you know, take another 20 minutes of your time, we'll just say, check it out. But however... The way Peter responds in this text indicates there's still a missing element in their spiritual life. Where in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. (laughs) Tying into the prior paragraph, this is further evidence, as if we needed any, that Peter wasn't exactly being handed the authority to be the infallible Pope. No, one minute calling Jesus Lord, the Messiah, and then seconds later calling him, I mean, Jesus literally calling him Satan. How'd that happen? And honestly, how is it possible for Peter to suddenly be speaking for Satan after just saying these things, after making that discussion, that that confession that Jesus is the Christ? And well, people have speculated many things, but look, anyone attempting to thwart Jesus' mission towards the cross is doing the work of Satan. 
I don't think this here is a necessary a possession or an oppression or anything like that. I just think Peter at this point is completely in line with what Satan wants to deter Christ from the cross. I mean, Satan had even practically said the same words to Jesus back in Matthew 4 during the temptation in the wilderness. Some of you might remember that where Satan was essentially saying to Jesus even then, you don't have to go to the cross I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth now. Just come and worship me. You don't have to go to the cross and redeem the whole world. You know, I'll give you the kingdoms now. Again, that, that theme of don't go to the cross. Don't redeem the world. That's, that's exactly what Satan wants. And frankly, Peter said this for other reasons as well. Him and all the other apostles really were expecting a political messiah. So the fact that Jesus wasn't going to be ruling and reigning from an earthly kingdom at his first coming, you know, that would have been a stumbling block to them. That would have surprised them. And, and frankly, also, you know, Jesus, Peter no doubt loved Jesus as well. He spent so much time with him at this point. The very idea of losing his friend and having him be killed, not, nothing about this would have sat well with Peter or any of the other disciples. So there's many ways to understand why he would react this way, but as hard as it was to accept, it was absolutely necessary. There was simply no other way to take us broken sinners and make us acceptable before a holy and perfect God again. Jesus had to go to the pay the price for sin that we could not pay. <laughs> but yet there's a, there's a subtle contradiction in Peter's words here. Did you catch it? Far be it from you, Lord. You will absolutely not do this. This will never happen to you, Lord. He's, he's calling him his Lord, his king, his master, while at the same time telling him what to do. That's not how this works. And this would be hilarious if you and I didn't do the same thing from time to time. Don't we? Have you ever called Jesus Lord and confessed him, maybe even singing these hymns, declaring him Lord of all, and then went ahead and did something that displeased him? Go off and willingly sin? Or perhaps have you gotten angry with Jesus when his plans look different than yours? Or have you ever said, oh, I know what God's word says, but here's what I think about that topic. Oof, we do that, don't we? And frankly, our sins always look uglier on somebody else. It's easy to look at Peter and say, what are you doing there, Peter? What's wrong with you? It's a lot harder to look at yourself and see the same thing. But that's what we must do. And I pray that for each of us here, you know, we would see that and make that change in our own lives. Because look, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all in your life. He's either surrendered in all areas of your life or you're not fully surrendered to him. And we'll unpack that more in just a little bit. But for Peter, at least at this moment, he has his mind set on the things of man rather than the things of God, which is what led him to rebuke Jesus. But what does that mean, the things of man? Well, to be blunt, it's the things of our sinful flesh. 
It's the simple, short-sighted, easy way that you and I are prone to choose in our flesh. It's the, it's the things of Adam taking the path of least resistance in the garden rather than doing what was right. And for us, it's, it has an infinite number of ways it can look out. It's telling the little white lie to avoid an awkward conversation. It's fudging some numbers on your company books to get you home on time. It's indulging in sin, thinking you can cover it up. It's the shorter, easier way that doesn't lead towards godliness, that doesn't lead towards righteousness. The things of God, on the other hand, well, those are the things that lead to our godliness. Those are the things that are righteous. Those are the things that are not necessarily easier now, but are rewarding in the end. This is when Jesus carried the cross to Calvary. This is when Jesus said in his garden, if you will, and prayed uh, to let the cup pass from him, but nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Much harder, but much more rewarding. Much more true. And I can't help but to think on this Mother's Day, as I was preparing, what a godly and wonderful thing motherhood is. How that is right up there with the things of God. You know, I can't think of anything more worthwhile or more godly a calling than laying down your comforts for the sake of another. Isn't that exactly what the gospel is? To lay down your life or at least aspects of it to train up the next generation, to pour your love into them, to take care of them. If there's not a Christ analogy in there, I don't know what is. And it's a beautiful thing. And like I said, it's rewarding in the end. Not easy at the start, but rewarding in the end. I don't know any of you mothers who've come up to me and said, you know what, I wish I didn't have my child. I wish I didn't have my last child. Or anything ridiculous like that. But let me tell you, I've met plenty of women, on the other hand, who've said, you know what? I wish I didn't spend so many hours at work. I wish I didn't spend all that time climbing up the corporate ladder, thinking I needed an exuberant amount more money, and looking back on the time lost with their children. So, like I said, you know, likewise, the Christian walk is worth it. It'll cost you now. But there's, there's no regret later. It is pure joy walking with Christ. But speaking of that cost that I'm speaking of, Jesus now rebukes Peter and helps him to understand something in verse 24, saying, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If anyone is going to come after me, if you are going to be my disciple, Jesus says, if you are going to call yourself a Christian, so this is gospel-level stuff here. This is salvation-level stuff here. You must deny yourself. You must turn from those sins that you and I commit. Take up your cross and follow him. You know, being a Christian is radically different than something that has no cost in your life. It's different than ordering a library card where basically you just show up and sign on the dotted line and you get one. There's a cost involved in this. 
And, if, and to take up your cross means to have a willingness to pay any price for Christ's sake. To affirm in your heart that you would pay any cost, endure any shame, and leave nothing unsurrendered to Christ for the sake of knowing him and following him and identifying with him. Maybe it costs you everything. Maybe it doesn't, but you're willing to. That's what it means. That's what Romans 12.1 talks about, where it talks about offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He's not saying you need to be a dead sacrifice, laying down one time on the altar, but that you are wholly given over to Jesus continually in that sense. As, as given over to Christ, as those burnt offerings in the Old Testament were wholly given over. This is how we're to view our lives as Christians. Not, not as Jesus is just a little piece of my life. But no, Jesus is my life. I find my identity and my truth and who I am in him. And without this attitude, you know, well, frankly, because we, we don't have that attitude, we have problems. We, we overly sanitize how brutal the cross is. I mean, think about it. It is such a horrific and brutal thing to think about. It was a form of capital punishment that signified the most horrendous and torturous form of death at that time. When you really evaluate what it means to take up your cross, Jesus might as well have said to take up your electric chair. That's the imagery he wants us to have. It is heavy. It is shocking. But that's the image he wants us to have in our minds, to stare the the possible reality of death and persecution in the face for the sake of becoming a Christian, for the sake of following him, and saying, so be it. That's what I'm signing up for. And without this attitude... Again, Jesus, not I. I'm not the legalistic one here. Jesus is saying here, I'm not saying Jesus is legalistic, by the way. Goodness, no. But but Jesus is saying, if that's not your attitude, if that's not your heart, then you're not ready to come after me. You're not ready to be my disciple. We must be ready to be mocked for not being in congruence with the things of this world. We must be ready to be mocked, some of us, for rejecting evolution as this means of understanding uh, creation. Because it is incompatible with the scriptures. It's not even consistent with the science when you think about it. Nothing came from nothing for no reason. It doesn't make sense. So it's not even a Bible thing in that regard, but we will be mocked. And if so, and for those of you guys going into STEM fields or currently working in those fields where that might have a consequence, so be it. We are conviction-led people. We stand on what Christ says. For others of us, especially our, especially some of the younger ones here, you know, it might cost you popularity if you are labeled as the Jesus freak at your school or in your, or in your circle of friends. But so be it. I know that my Redeemer lives. I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to be ashamed of what Jesus has done for me. And look, there's no other way to say this, but social issues today are the worst with what's going on in the media and activists and schools and workplaces all pressuring people to affirm all kinds of things that are incongruent 
with the Christian message, with the truth of the Bible, with the truth of even the science, as I said before, not least of which the LGBTQ community and what they're forcing others to adapt or under the threat of punishment or the threat of not moving up the company ladder if you don't affirm and celebrate all of these things that we as a convictional people cannot celebrate. That even though every cell in my body is distinctly male, and many of you mothers here especially are distinctly female down to every last DNA in your body, you're asked to affirm otherwise. But we can't do that. can't love like that as Christians. And what's worse is that people will want to destroy your reputation, all kinds of horrible things simply because you follow the science and your Bible. But nevertheless, whatever that might cost you, take up your cross and follow him. We don't have to be ashamed of who God made us or what we believe. Now, because there's always a naysayer and because somebody always gets this confused, do we love those people? Of course we do. Only some really, really confused individuals would ever say otherwise. Of course we love people who are different than us or may not believe what we believe. But since when did you have to unapologetically affirm everything someone else believes to love them? That's never been the case. I don't even do that with my own kids. I mean, I think the more that you love someone, the more willing you are to correct them in somewhere they're wrong. I think actually the mistake is that the Christian church has not been loving in its silence sometimes. I mean, you mothers will be the first to affirm that you corrected your children if you loved them. If you cared about them and you saw them going down the wrong way, if you, saw, you see these character defects that are in all of your, your kids, you love them enough to have that conversation with them because you love them. And we need to start looking at our world in the same way. One last quote on that topic. A, a quote that utterly changed my life is when a popular atheist not a theologian, by the way, this is coming from an atheist, said that if there is a heaven and a literal heaven and a literal hell and you don't tell someone how to go there, how much do you hate that person? How much do you have to hate somebody if there is a heaven and a hell to not tell them how to get there or avoid there? Something to think about. And so, no, Jesus isn't promising us popularity. He's not promising us an easy way. But what he is promising us is that it's worth it. As he tells us in verse 25 outright, saying, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in return for his soul? The person that chooses not to pick up their cross, thinking they're going to have an easier time, thinking that things are going to be better without the shame or the consequences, thinking they're going to be better off with their thriving career and their thriving popularity, are going to be gravely mistaken someday as desiring to save their life and reputation, they lose it. It's just not worth it. There's nothing in this life that is worth more than your soul and where you are going to spend eternity. 
Solomon noted in Ecclesiastes that life is just a vapor, a breath. It is here one moment and it's gone. And look, ask anybody here with gray hairs. They'll tell you it feels like two blinks of an eye ago they were in their 30s raising their kids. I talked to enough of you guys to start believing you. But it's true, it's, life is too short to gamble whether or not we're going to have tomorrow to think about these things. We need to decide on these matters today, who we shall serve, who we will follow, who we shall trust, if we will pick up that cross. And to give us perspective, as, as we weigh these matters, we remember, I talked about Matthew 4 before, the temptation in the wilderness, At that time, Jesus was offered all the kingdoms of the world. And he still refused. If he refused that, what do we compromise over? Money? Pleasure? Status? Approval? We're going to trade our lives, our souls, our eternity for that? It puts things in perspective. I heard a story of a wealthy man propositioning a young woman, rather inappropriately, and offered her a million dollars. She was shocked by it. And shocked by the moment she says, okay, I'm married, let let me go home, let me think about it. And so she goes home and she thinks about it, reluctantly comes in the next day and says, okay, for a million dollars I'll do it. And the wealthy man says, well, actually, I've been meaning to tell you, you know, I don't actually have a million dollars. Will you do it for 20? And she says to him, what kind of a woman do you think I am? And he says to her, I already know what kind of woman you are. Now we're just haggling the price. Ouch. There's a sting to that because there's some truth in that. Is there a price for your convictions? Is there a price for who you are and your identity as a Christian? Is there a price that you will sell your soul for? Is there a price at some point that the sin in your life that you individually struggle with becomes acceptable? Because if so, you're no different than that woman. If there's anywhere on that spectrum we're willing to give way, we're not all for Jesus. We're up until a point. We need to be completely sold out to him. And sadly, sadly, this message is missing from a lot of churches today. It's a missing element. That this necessity to live in accordance fully with what we believe. As if believing in Jesus has no consequences for the way you and I live our lives. But rather, as the, as the hymn writer put it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Which reminds us of something so necessary. I couldn't walk away from the pulpit without saying this. But we don't do this as an act of our great love, but in response to Jesus' great love for us. Now, I say these things. At the end of the day, this isn't a message about guilting you into being a better Christian. That's not the message. It's recognizing how much Jesus loves us. And realizing how little our cross weighs compared to the weight of the cross he carried for us. 
whatever becoming a Christian, whatever the true cost of Christian discipleship may cost you, it's nothing. It's not even the dust on the scale compared to what Jesus has done for us. And what he laid aside, what he suffered in order to redeem us and give us the free gift of eternal life. And with that in mind, it's always easier to follow a leader who has done what they ask of you, who has already done what you what he is asking of you, they have already done. It's always easier to follow a leader like that. So it's very significant that Jesus says, Take up your cross. And follow me as I carry the cross in front of you. And look, it's, it's, it's no mystery why this is a missing element. We're all very self-protective by nature, aren't we? We, we resist anything that challenges the status quo in our lives, don't we? I mean, you hear about a mistake that happens in the workplace. And the very first thing out of your mouth was, oh, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. You didn't even hear what happened at work yet, and you're already denying it. It's just this automatic response that comes out of us. Especially here in this town, we are a very proud people. I mean, why'd you do it that way? Everybody knows you don't do it that way. Oh, it's, it's, uh, that only happened because you paired me with the new guy. You did, Don't do that again. I, I've heard it all. And frankly... I've said half of them myself, so I can't condemn anybody here. I get it. But the point is, we we hate and we resist anything of major consequence in our lives. We try to keep even our spiritual lives as predictable and normal as possible, as unrattled by the things of this world. But yet Jesus has not given us that option. He said, take up your cross and follow me. And yes, that is uncomfortable, but Jesus never promised it was going to be easy. What he promised was that it's worth it. We need to let our guard down. We need to do some self-reflecting and realize it's worth it. What does it mean for you, you this morning, to take up your cross? What has Jesus asked you to do that you've been neglecting? What things of man do you cling to? What what easier way has prevented you from following the more difficult but rewarding way of the cross? And what do you have to gain at the expense of your own soul? Pray it over. Nothing is worth holding on to in this life that is not worth gaining eternal life in the next. Search your heart. I've done it too. Count the cost. Lay it at the feet of Jesus today. It's worth it. Thanks be to God. Amen.